dedicated to each and every one of you who appreciate a great glass of wine. You know what I mean? It's Monday. Let's raise a glass to the beginning of another week. It's time to unscrew, uncork, or saber a bottle. And let's begin exploring the wine glass. It has been a whirlwind three weeks, and I have not had time to record a new episode. But don't worry, today's best of is seriously an incredible episode. I had the pleasure and luck to sit down with John Wagner of Wagner Vineyards in the Finger Lakes. His family has been involved in the Finger Lakes wine industry for generations. Not only does he know the history of the region, but he knows how to make exceptional wines. Wagner Vineyards was named 2019 New York Wine Classic Winery of the Year after four of his Rieslings received double gold. I hope you enjoy this best of episode, and I'll be back with a new episode next week. Slancha. Thanks for listening to Exploring the Wine Glass podcast, the podcast for people who love wine. I'm Lori Budd, a UC Davis winemaking program and WSET Level 2 graduate. You can find Exploring the Wine Glass on all the socials, as well as your favorite podcast catchers. If you haven't subscribed yet, now's the perfect time. I promise I'll never tell you what to drink, but I'll always share what's in my glass. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Exploring the Wine Glass. Today, I have a fantastic interview for you. I was provided some samples of the Finger Lakes wine region, and I reached out to the Finger Lakes Wine Alliance and asked who I could speak to about the history of the region. They directed me to John Wagner of Wagner Vineyards. So I was lucky enough to have John jump on a Zoom conversation with me. His family has been involved in the Finger Lakes wine industry for generations. Not only does he know the history of the region, but he knows how to make exceptional wines, as Wagner Vineyards was named 2019 New York Wine Classic Winery of the Year, after four of his Rieslings received double gold. So I hope you enjoy the conversation, and remember to please swipe, subscribe, rate, and review so that others can find Exploring the Wine Glass. Slancha. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Allure of the Poor, sponsored by Dracina Wines. In today's episode, I am sitting down with John Wagner of Wagner Vineyards in Finger Lakes, New York, and we are going to talk about the history of the Finger Lakes, the wine history of the Finger Lakes, and you know what? I got a preview taste of that Riesling, and we're going to get down and dirty and talk about Riesling in the Finger Lakes, because It was a wonderful glass, and I'm pretty darn happy I have a second bottle because it's going to be popping soon because it's about 105 degrees outside, and this weekend it cools down, and I'm going to celebrate the cooling down with another glass of Wagner Riesling. So welcome, John, and thank you for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me. I look forward to it. So I wanted to first start off with a bit about the Finger Lakes, the history of it, um, like how I, I had read that it started by glaciers, that these lakes came in, the fingers are glaciers. So can you elaborate a little bit more about like the, the beginnings of the finger lakes? Sure. So, uh, many thousands of years ago, there were shallow riverbeds that flowed, um, north, south, and were the early beginnings of where the finger lakes lie now. Um, and 11,000 years ago was the last ice age. And in this area right here, we had a blanket of ice that was a mile thick. And that ice uh, moved from north to south and it scoured the earth. And as it, as it traveled down those uh, shallow riverbeds, uh, it formed the 11 Finger Lakes. And so the, the action of that heavy ice scouring down through there moved a lot of material from north to south, and it dug those, those lakes very deep. Um, when the, the glacier melted and receded, 
Um, all that water ran down the banks of those lakes and made the, the steep gorges and a lot of the waterfalls and everything that we have, the, the points of nature and beauty in the area. Um, and we were left with these deep bodies of water. Um, Seneca Lake is the deepest. It's 640 feet deep. So very, very deep, um, long, resembling fingers. Uh, that's hence the name, the Finger Lake. So uh, a lot of fruit planted around these these lakes. Are the are the fingers um, connected? Can you go from one lake to another lake, or are they independent? Uh, some of them, some of them are connected um, in water flows from one to the other, and some are, are connected through canals where you could actually navigate from one lake to another. Like from Seneca to Cuga, you can get there and you can get to the St. Lawrence Seaway uh, from the Finger Lakes. So yes, yeah, some are connected. Some are connected only through like uh, streams that flow from one to the other. Do, do people tend to, who live there, who reside there, do they tend to travel by way of boat versus driving or? Uh, there's there's not a lot of travel between the lakes by boat. Um, some through between Seneca and Cuga through the canal. Um, but the, the region's very unique because people that are across Seneca Lake from where I am are only three and a half miles away from me, but it takes an hour to get over there because I have to drive all the way around the lake. So um, back in the 1800s, there was a lot of ferries that did move people around the lakes um, that is kind of gone by the wayside at this point. So everybody's oh. traveling by car and uh, yeah, that's falling out of fashion. But uh, yeah, that was a big back in the 1800s and early 1900s. Oh, cool. So I also read because I love supernatural stuff and mystery, you know, mystery and stuff, but there's also the thought the the great spirit had reached down and touched the earth, transforming it to a sacred land and blessed by nature. So that's a really beautiful thing. So is that from Indians the that lived there or, you know, who yeah, started the Finger Lakes? Definitely an intriguing story. I think that was passed down from the Native Americans that had settled the region uh, shortly after the glacier receded. Um, but um, I think, you know, we all kind of really understand the science behind it and what really did form them. But yeah, sure. So yeah, there's been uh, people in the region for uh, many thousands of years. Um, and then really about... Uh, the late 1700s was when European settlers came in the area and began to uh, do more farming of, of fruit and other crops in the area. So. And is there still a large population of Native Indians, uh, Native Americans in the area? There is a small population um, in the in northern Seneca County, um, and. Yes, there, there is some, but not nearly what there was. I mean, there was quite, quite extensive farming that the Native Americans had done here along the shores of the lake. Uh, uh, peaches and corn and even quite a bit of fruit because they had identified the areas that had a little bit uh, more moderate climate next to the lake. So. And you had mentioned that there's 11 lakes. Do all 11 lakes have wine growing or vineyards growing around them? The, the majority of the vineyards are clustered around the, the four largest lakes in the center. So Canadagua, Cuca, Seneca, and Cayuga. Um, there are some smaller wineries uh, throughout some of the lakes beyond that to the, to the west and to the east. But those smaller lakes do tend to freeze in the wintertime. Oh. And when the surface of the lake freezes, then you lose the effect of that water giving up its heat in the wintertime. So um, the, the grapes that are grown in the regions outside of those four central lakes are, are pretty limited. Um, we are on the east side of Seneca Lake. And as I mentioned before, due to its depth, it uh, hasn't frozen solid in the wintertime since 1912. Oh. So that open body of water is what gives us a little bit of protection um, from those cold winter temperatures. We do tend to get a prevailing northwest wind that comes across that open water and keeps the east side of Seneca Lake just a, a slight bit warmer than surrounding regions. So 
Um, that's really the, the reason that most of the most of the grapes are clustered around those larger lakes that do tend to have a little bit more temperature moderating effect than the smaller ones. So we, we know, like in California, we talk about the coastal influence, and you're talking about a lake influence. Is that is it similar to a coastal influence, but not as dramatic? Yes, I, I would definitely say that, um, because I think with coastal, you've got a wide expanse of land that might be experiencing the same conditions, where here it can vary, but depending on where you are on the lake, if you're on the north side, the west side, the east side, it's very different. And uh, we tend to get most of our farm is a sloping site that slopes from east to west toward the lake. So even in the summertime, we get quite a bit of lake influence. Um, uh, at night, um, we get the, the air rushing down the hillside as the air cools down and it rushes out over the lake and we get convective heat rise over the lake. So we tend to get really good air drainage uh, throughout the year and that can prevent us getting a, a frost, either a spring frost or a frost near harvest that would, uh, you know, take our leaves off. So it, it really, it's, it's similar in the effect that the large body of water is influencing temperature, but it's much more patchwork quilt on the areas that are getting the influence rather than uh, our properties along the coast and the whole coast gets that big, big effect. So what similar, about, but slightly different. What about in terms of irrigation? How do, do you have any issue with, can you dry yeah. farm or do you still need to irrigate? Yeah, so we are 100% dry farmed. Um, as I would say, just knowing the growers around the area, I would say 95, 98% of the farms are dry farmed. There are a few new plantings going in uh, where, that are installing drip irrigation. We get about 35 inches of rainfall per year, um, which if spaced out equally is just about right for us through the growing season. Um, we do tend to get some heavier rain events than we used to get. So those are a little challenging for us, given that the, the farms are on sloping sites. Um, so we, we have to be very cognizant of uh, soil conservation um, and things of that nature, permanent cover crops and protecting that topsoil. But uh, no, the, the vast majority of vineyards in the Finger Lakes are dry farmed. And what is your soil composition? So we are, our farm is on mostly honey oil silt loam, which is a very well-drained soil, um, tends to be about a, a minimum of 80 inches to an obstructive layer. So um, we, in the last 20 years, have really been supplementing even that well-drained soil with supplemental uh, pattern drain tiling. So doing everything we can pre-plant to lower the seasonal water table. And then when we establish vineyards, we do a lot of deep ripping in order to establish deep root systems. And once we get those vine roots down in the ground four to eight feet down, they really are very resistant to, to drought conditions. And hence the, the, the not having the need to provide supplemental irrigation for them. So um, do, we do a lot pre-plant to really prep the soil. Um, which is quite a big change from us. Uh, 30 years ago, we would do spur tiling out to a notorious wet spot, and then we would plant. Now we're, we're planting almost exclusively vinifera varieties, um, which uh, to get them through the winter, you've got to do everything right. Mm -hmm. And one of the things is to get consistent vine size and to get them to be healthy throughout the growing season um, and get those roots down in the, in the ground deep and Grapevines don't like wet feet, so uh, we do we do a lot to lower that seasonal water table through uh, supplemental drain tile. So. And how big is actually the Finger Lakes region? And then you said that the wine region is pretty much localized around those center lakes. So about how many wineries are there in what you would say the Finger Lakes region? Yeah, so the, the region... It, in, in entirety is 2.6 million total acres. Um, of that, about 11,000 are planted to grapes. Oh, so, okay. yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's not big by California standards, but it's, it's a, lot of, a lot of one crop in, in this particular region. Um, there are uh, 112 wineries in the official Finger Lakes ABA region. 
and a little over half of them are right around Seneca Lake. So Seneca Lake tends to, I I keep going back there. I'm a little biased because I'm on Seneca Lake, but it is, it is the deepest, uh, the most temperature influencing body of water. It does contain about half of the volume of water. So it contains as much water as the other 10 lakes combined. Wow. Um, So yeah, a little over a hundred wineries in the region and uh, yeah, a, a huge amount of growth. In, in wineries since we started. Um, we are, are celebrating, we just celebrated 40 years in the wine business here a few years ago. Uh, yeah, opened in 79. So yeah, lots a lot's changed in 40 years. So I'm trying to think back, because um, we're originally from New Jersey, and I know that when we first got, when we first got married, which was in 95, so I'm going to say somewhere around 2000 ish, mm-hmm. we, um, we took a ride and we spent it, uh, in, I'm probably in the Ithaca. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's where we stayed as our base point, And then we kind of went off, but I don't think there were that many wineries back, back then. No, um, no, it probably would have been in the dozens at that point. Um, so yeah, Ithaca is at the south end of Cayuga Lake, about a half an hour from where we were located. Okay. Um, and so I think that since then, you the region itself has really grown. But I think that's true with any wine region. Once you get somebody in there that starts to do something and then learn that area, because no matter what you farm, whether it's grapes, oranges, almonds, whatever, you have to learn that soil, you have to learn that climate and learn what works and then For and then sure. more people come yeah. in. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it, it, it kind of takes a, a critical mass of, of wineries to bring more people to the region as well. So we've, we've definitely seen that as um, I think we might be kind of at the point where we are are saturated, but you, you never know. But it, it, it has helped having a critical mass of wineries bringing more people to the region. So. In, in terms of visiting, so did we do it correctly? Did we, you know, pick a base point and travel off? Or do you recommend, you know, spending a day at one lake and then changing location? And Yeah, I would definitely uh, plan to not jump around too much because if you try to drive down the road and not have a, an itinerary in mind and you just stop at every sign that you see, um, it can become kind of rushed. And, you know, I think doing your homework first and finding out places that you really want to go. If you're, if you're more into coming to a place, uh, that is authentic, like we are, we have, we are 100% estate bottled, so we grow all our own grapes. We produce all our own wines here. We do uh, quite a bit of education to the people that come here and talking about the history of the region and talking about the history of our farm and what goes into what we do differently to grow our grapes. Um, and then you've got, you, you've got the full spectrum. Um, there's some wineries that are uh, tasting rooms that have opened along the area that they really have a brand, but they wouldn't have uh, production facilities or, or fruit. But you kind of, if you're, depends on what type of experience you're looking for. But I would, I would uh, just recommend that really try not to have a rushed visit because I, people will feel like they're chasing their tail if they're trying to go around and, and hit every place along the way versus uh, sitting down at a place that, that, connects with you and you can really learn some things about it. And, uh, you know, we've been doing it a long time and we take great pride in, in our fruit and in our wines. And we think that shows through in there and, and hope we can convey that to our customers. Wonderful. So going back to the history, when the Finger Lakes first started being populated by, by the Europeans, what was there, what brought them to the Finger Lakes? You know, yeah. So, I mean, as we talked about before, pretty fertile soils uh, throughout the region. Um, there was quite a bit of timber in the area, so there was a lot of natural resources for them to be able to produce um, homes, to produce lumber. 
um, the flowing water in the rivers. There was a lot of mills where they were grinding drain, um, sawmills where they were sawing up the, the, the timber. So quite, a, quite an abundant um, natural resources in the area that they were able to harvest and use and, and settle the area, build uh, structures, and then just, uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of crops were growing well in the area. So as, as more of that came in, um, the, the railroads came through and were able to move things around. The waterways at that point moved a lot of goods. Uh, my grandfather would, would take his grape harvest with a horse and a wagon down to uh, a dock on Seneca Lake and load it on a steamboat. So um, we definitely, the, the lakes were used to, to move goods uh, around. And yeah, it just, it was a really abundant region with ways to get things around, to move things around. And uh, other than, you know, pretty harsh winters, but uh, everybody learned to deal with that. <laughs> so. It's amazing. I think most um, most communities really flourish once a railroad got there. And, yeah. you you know, your area had the waterway to start off with, so it probably really flourished. You know, they were able to move one way, then that railroad comes in and and yeah, it was kind of like the technology change. So waterways dominated in the beginning, then the railroads came in and the water travel kind of subsided a little bit. And then the over the road trucking came in and that kind of, there is, there is still a few railroads that move uh, goods around, but a lot fewer than there was uh, even 50 years ago. And was the Finger Lakes, were they flourishing at the time of Prohibition? Do we have a lot of wineries at that time? Uh, yes, yeah, actually we did. Um, so back in the late 1800s, um, there was many native varieties planted in the area. So Concord, Niagara, Delaware, Catawba, and quite, <clears throat> quite a uh, booming um, wine business with these older wineries and it, it all kind of came crashing down with with prohibition and it, it it ended a lot of those a lot of the structures still stand um and are kind of historic buildings at this point some are museums but uh pretty much uh it was a it was a death blow to a lot of those businesses that were that were functioning at the time and then there was there was some fires too a lot of a lot of these older uh, structures that had built up to bigger sizes were uh, there was some hotels around the lake and a lot of those wooden structures were susceptible to to fire and just given the, the technology for early electricity and 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 wood heat and all these right. things so yeah so yeah. things but yeah so then there was kind of this lull um and there was some, some large commercial wineries for instance, the Taylor Wine Company and Canandaigua Wine Company um, began to get bigger and bigger and have a, a, a large grower base. So my father was a lifelong grape grower for the Taylor Wine Company. Um, and then we, we briefly talked uh, about how we got in the wine business. And uh, my, my parents had taken a trip to Europe in uh, 1972 with some area grape growers. And he really saw winemaking on a small scale over there, which was uh, something he wasn't used to, being a lifelong grape grower for Taylor, which was a massive winery with large, huge, large scale tanks and presses and everything. So when he saw it being done over in Europe on a smaller scale, um, it kind of hatched the idea that he could do it. And then coincidentally in 1976, New York State passed the Farm Winery Act, which allowed growers to get into the wine business and the, the different component that it allowed was once you had a farm winery you could produce wine and do tastings and sell retail as well as sell wholesale prior to that if you had a winery license it all had to be sold through wholesale channels so it really it really was the impetus that started um, the uh, ex uh, exponential growth of farm wineries in the Finger Lakes and allowing the, the tourists to come into the area and travel and go through the tours in the winery and the tastings. So that, that was really the big, uh, um, the big change that had enabled that to happen. So going back to that, to that act, 
previous to the passing of that act, you either had to be a grower or a producer? Or, yes, a grower or a commercial winery that could produce wine and sell it through wholesalers only. There so no, no taste, no, no private. No retail sales, no oh, tasting, wow. no anything. So it was a big sea change for that, and it really... It, it, it played right into what a lot of growers were like, hey, I, I want to try my hand at this and, and getting small scale equipment. So um, when, the, when the New York State Farm Winery Act passed in 76, we began construction of, the, of our winery that year. And uh, we built it using our own vineyard crew. And, and it took us three years. But in 79, we opened to the public. And uh, yeah, we're at that point making wines out of the varieties of grapes that we had planted. And then at that point we began to plant vinifera and that's been kind of our main focus from that point forward is expanding our vinifera acreage uh, to accommodate the wines that we really felt we wanted to make and we could make a splash on the, on the world stage with. And has there ever been an issue with phylloxera there? Well, not so much because most, uh, all the vinifera that's planted, uh oh. Wait, resistant rootstock. Wait, I'm sorry. Can you go back and say that again? Because you froze a bit. Okay. Uh, so phylloxera really was was not a, a a big problem for us because the varieties we were growing back uh, prior to '76 were native and French American yeah. hybrids, which had very good resistance to phylloxera. And then when we began to plant grafted vinifera varieties, uh, we, they were grafted on rootstock that was resistant to phylloxera. So um, there is still some own rooted vinifera planted in the United States, but it's usually on soils where they don't have a, a big problem with phylloxera. But the, um, almost 100% of the vinifera planted in the Finger Lakes is on uh, phylloxera resistant rootstock. Okay. Um, when honestly, when I hear Finger Lakes back when we went, it was all native, you know, um, but now you hear Finger Lakes and you kind of think Riesling and, um, Dr. Constantin Frank, his name is like all over when you, you know, it's almost like synonymous with Finger Lakes. So who is he? Why is why is his name pop up a lot on Google when you sure. search Finger Lakes? <laughs> so he was a Ukrainian immigrant that had studied uh, vinifera grape growing uh, over in his home country under very cold conditions. Um, so when when he arrived here, there was very little vinifera planted in the region. And it had been tried and experimented. Uh, Cornell was always experimenting with different varieties. And most of those initial trials had not gone well for vinifera. Um, so when he inquired about that, he was told, well, it just we've tried it. It doesn't go grow well in this region. He knew that uh, it, back in Ukraine, under similar cold winter conditions, he was able to grow vinifera varieties. So. Um, he got into the, the research business and he began to do some small scale trials and uh, proved that uh, vinifera could be grown in our region. So that's why you, you do see his name a lot because he was kind of the one that said, hey, you know, I think we can grow these varieties. So they, they are uh, still a very active winery in the region. Um, and yes, they continue to be uh, one of the larger wineries in the region and really doing a nice job promoting the region and, and, and making high quality wines. And in terms of promoting the region, there is the Finger Lakes Wine Alliance. Yes. Right? Is that a community of winemakers, growers? Like how did that alliance, when did that alliance come in? Sure. So about 15 years ago, um, the Wine Alliance was formed. Um, there presently there's about 35 wineries that are member wineries. Uh, I'm on the board of directors for the Finger Lakes Wine Alliance, but our, our mission is to promote Rand Finger Lakes. 
and to to really showcase the wines and the wineries of the region and uh, take our message outside of, of New York State and really get it out there uh, through channels such as yours and through various other things. But uh, we know we're, we're doing a, a super job on promoting quality vinifera wines in the region. And uh, yeah, the Wine Alliance is, is, is championing that effort and trying to get the word out. So, but yes, there's several other organizations that are similarly minded. Some are more about bringing tourists to the region. Some are more about brand, branding the region itself. So, so in terms of when somebody comes there, it, it's almost, they can come any season. There's so much to do in, in that area. Now, during the winter, are the wineries open for tasting all year round? So, yeah, most, most of the larger wineries, uh, us included, are, we're open year round. Um, we close Thanksgiving, New Year's, and Christmas. Those are the three <laughs> days. But we're open every other day, and we don't see as many uh, uh, visitors during some of those months. But sometimes that gives you like a more intimate experience when you do come here because you got more one-on-one with our tasting staff. Um, so yeah, there, most most wineries are open. The smaller ones may have reduced hours, or they may close for some. Some of them close for the season, but there's a, a lot of wineries are open year round. So we we uh, we want to be open and and but yeah, there's there's a ton of things to do in the region, even in the wintertime. Um, there there's Finger Lakes National Forest. There's hiking trails. There's skiing trails. There's some uh, ski resorts in the area that are not too far away. Uh, one of the things that kind of um, hampered the region for a number of years was lodging. And we've pretty much corrected that um, in the last couple decades. There's much more lodging available. Okay. Um, hotels scattered around the lakes, a lot more B&Bs. And uh, so, yeah, that, that is no longer. And there's a ton of great places to eat now, too. So. Okay. All right. And so if somebody's coming to Wagner or to most of the wineries, is it open door policy? Skip the pandemic concept. But uh, yeah. typically, is it open door policy or are they appointment or only what are what's Wagner? And now a word from our sponsor. Did you know that Dracina Wines now has a wine club? We named it the Chalk Club. Draco is on our label, but Vegas was getting a little jealous, so we decided he deserved to be our club spokesdog. In Las Vegas, betting chalk means that you are betting on all of the favorites. We are betting that we are one of your favorite wineries, so we thought the name was apropos. The club is simple, yet a bit different than most. When you wager on us, we will ship you three bottles of wine twice a year, once in April and once in September. You can choose all red or mix of red and rosé. You immediately receive 15% off of all your wine purchases throughout the year, but what makes our club stand out is the progressive discount. Let your club membership ride into the next year. Your discount increases. Each year you parlay your membership, you receive an additional 5% off up to a planned maximum of 25%. Your club shipments are discounted to a flat $15, plus we'll cover your club shipping cost for your second shipment. That's $15 house money in a sure bet for you. So please head to our website, dracinawines.com, and find out all of the benefits of joining the Chalk Club and how to sign up. We've stacked the odds so that you can get our award-winning wines without breaking the bank. Sure. So uh, typical, we would be uh, open door and reservation for groups of eight or more. Um, With uh, the changes that we're doing uh, with the reopening after uh, the coronavirus and everything, we are going to be appointment and we're gonna limit uh, group size to six at a tasting bar. Trying to open and keep our numbers down so that we can keep everybody socially distanced. Uh, So it's gonna be a little bit of a change for all of us. And I think think everybody's getting used to the fact that things aren't gonna just pop back to normal instantly. So, um, but yes, uh, in in normal conditions, it would be, you can, pull into the, the parking lot and anything, unless you have a group of, of, of eight or more, then you would need a reservation. 
And earlier you had mentioned that you like to educate your customers along the way. Do you do anything at Wagner like vineyard tours or special yeah. tastings, things like that? Yeah, so we do. We, we do tours of the building, which used to be back in the seven, late 70s when we opened up, they were hugely popular. Everybody that came wanted a 45-minute tour to find out how to make wine. Um, they, we still continue to do the tour. We're one of the few in the Finger Lakes that do. Um, there's a lot more people now that want to taste wine, and they've seen the wineries. They understand how wine is made, so it's, but uh, we still get some interest in people that want to do the tour. Um, we do some, uh, we have a, a, quite an extensive wine club that uh, we, we do different events for where we, we'll offer special vineyard tours for them. We don't have the vineyard tours on a daily basis. We, we have a very large farm and we're, we're out there working every day, but uh, it's, it's sometimes uh, difficult to, to stop and, and bring everybody out and show them. But we have been trying to do um, some virtual stuff during this whole shutdown. Uh, we've been doing that for 10 or 12 weeks now on, on Fridays at five. So um, getting the word out, going out in the vineyard and uh, Alex and myself trying to do some filming and really show people what is involved uh, from the ground up, literally, to grow grapes in the Finger Lakes sustainably. Um, and that's, uh, that's a big uh, point of focus for us is not just planting the flavor of the week vineyard and finding out we can't keep it alive for more than five or 10 years. We want to, we want to establish vineyards that are productive and healthy and, and growing grapes for 50 plus years. And uh, we think we've, we found a, a lot of viticultural practices that allow us to do that sustainably. And that's, that's really a huge focus for my entire family. That's awesome. And I saw, so congratulations, you were named, Wagner Winery was named New York Wine Classics 2019 Winery of the Year. So congratulations, that yeah. that seems to be a, an amazing accomplishment. Thank you very much. That was, that was a nice award because it really recognized the quality across the entire line of wines. Um, we, we had submitted seven wines for that competition and four Rieslings received double gold in that. So it was just a... A real nice accolade showing uh, the the quality across the board of, of our wines. So we've worked very hard with the Riesling variety in particular. Um, when we start, first started planting vinifera in the late 70s, we planted a few acres of uh, Riesling, Gewurz, and Chardonnay, um, Cab Franc, Cab Sauv, Merlot, and Pinot. And then for oh 10 or 12 years, we kind of kept those acreages began to make uh, about 25 years ago, my father and I, we looked and, and decided Riesling was, was going to be a variety of the Finger Lakes, that it, it overwintered very well. Um, the quality of the wine was consistent, even though the growing conditions from year to year weren't. Um, cold year, hot year, wet year, dry year, we still came through with amazing varietal character in the Riesling. So that's when we really began to expand the acreage on that. Uh, we have over 60 acres of, of that one variety planted on our farm, uh, which is the largest planting of, of, of Riesling in the Finger Lakes. Oh, wow. So we have a very diverse um, clone, different clones, different rootstocks, different age vineyards from six years old to 42 years old, um, different elevation sites, which has really expanded our, our Riesling program and allowed uh, just layers of complexity in the flavor. We really stress super ripe fruit. So we do a lot during the growing season to be able to enable longer hang time in the vineyard. Uh, Riesling is a thin skin variety, as you know, so they are susceptible to botrytis. And uh, we'll, in, in some of our wines, we like a little botrytis mm -hmm. character and others, we do whatever we can to, to keep it out and keep healthy functioning canopies late in the season. So we can really get super ripe fruit. Um, we on the east side of Seneca Lake tend to have a few uh, higher growing. We some ripe Wait, characters. You cut out. Okay, can you sit on? Now? Yeah, you said on the east side, and then you cut out. Okay, uh, on the east side, we tend to have uh, higher growing degree days than oh, other okay. areas in the region. Um, so with that, we're we're able to 
to really push the ripening and get some super ripe uh, fruit characteristic out of the Riesling. So we're, we're very bullish on Riesling um, and, and we're beginning to be this, the same degree of bullishness on Cab Franc. Oh. Uh, yeah. So yeah, I, I can see you you're cheering that on as well. So uh, we now have 23 acres of Cabernet Franc in the ground, which is a pretty good commitment to to that variety. But uh, we 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 think a lot of the same things about that variety. It uh, overwinters well. We can get it ripe. We love the the flavors that the wine produces. We do a dry rosé of Cabernet Franc out of it. It's beautiful for that. So yeah, a lot of versatility, similar to, to Riesling as far as being super versatile. And uh, so yeah, there, there's a lot of varieties grown in the region, but uh, we really are, are kind of circling the wagons around Riesling and Cabernet mm-hmm. Franc. That's awesome. Which, which I think a lot of regions kind of go through that evolution of finding, finding what they can do great. And uh, um, other varieties that we don't feel we can with uh, for us being in a state bottled winery um, it's tough for me to take the investment to plant one of those varieties if I don't think I can do it sustainably Um, if you're a a commercial winery and you're purchasing juice or fruit you can take you can do an experiment a one or two year experiment but for us uh, we really believe in planting one foot long grapevines in the ground and and doing all the, the homework up front on those plantings and then uh, seeing how how they can show themselves and exhibit the flavors that we can develop here on our little slice of property on the east side of Seneca Lake. Right. See, and that's that's what I was talking about before. Is you know you could you could plant whatever you want on your site because it's your site, but it's good. It's going to grow. Is it going to flourish? Is it going to create a beautiful grape? Is it going to turn into a beautiful wine? No, but you can still, you can still grow it. And that's, that's the farming. That's the understanding nature and understanding the environment, the climate of what's going to grow, not only just grow, but what's going to flourish and, and make something extraordinary in that area, you know? Um, and, like that's what I said was, you know, we, as much as we love Paso Robles, we thought Clarksburg was a better environment for Shannon Blanc. So we are going to Shannon, we are going to Clarksburg for our Shannon Blanc. Doesn't mean that, I mean, we actually purchase wines from wineries that, that produce Shannon Blanc. We drink their Shannon Blanc, but for our, for us, you know, we went to where we thought that climate was better for our palate. And that's part of yeah. farming. You got to know, you got to know what it does and it's trial and error. You know, you may want something to grow very well and it says, yeah. uh-uh. <laughs> and it's, uh, some of those experiments uh, are tough ones because, you know, if you planting a vineyard, as you know, <laughs> is, is a very expensive endeavor. And if you make a mistake and choose the wrong variety or the wrong site, which there's a lot of, of people that think they can plant vinifera and they plant it on a site and find out they're on a colder site than they thought or a wetter site than they thought. And it doesn't uh, overwinter well and they end up with a lot of blanks. So, um, yeah, you, you really we, we have the, the good fortune of being able to have the 100 plus 125 years of experience that my family has done growing grapes here. So we've learned a lot of tough lessons through those years and hopefully employ every lesson we've learned and and move forward, keeping them in our mind. So, right. And again, those mistakes aren't overnight mistakes. You know, it takes years for the vineyard to grow to a point where you can take it, where you can harvest. And then if it doesn't grow, ripping it out is money, ripping it out is time, and you got to start all over again. So it's years yeah. and years invested. But then, uh, yeah, we've got we've got some good successes too, and that yep. you can carry them you can carry them forward as well. When you when you hit on a variety like Riesling and realize that what we're doing with the, the changes we've made viticulturally and being able to get that that fruit super ripe and uh, really have competed on the national stage and international stage with those wines, which is, it's exciting. And, uh, you know, that's, that's where our focus is going to be moving forward. And, uh, it's, it's a fun time. So how many different Rieslings do you make? 
I'm currently making seven. Seven. Wine. So yeah. what's the what's your difference between them? The the ripeness, the sweetness. Yeah. So we we harvest uh, all these different vineyards separately. Okay. Um. So and then we vinify separately, and we'll keep everything separate as long as possible. And then we would blind taste test all the tanks. We we do now make a single vineyard, Kwood East, um, that is off one of our very steep Riesling blocks that is a higher elevation site, very distinctive fruit, uh, mineral driven flavors. Mm -hmm. It is always our driest Riesling. So um, playing kind of with that excitement of the acidity in there, a super food wine, that is usually the first one we make just because mm -hmm. we have the fewest components coming out of that vineyard. Uh, we do have several clones of vines in there. So we'll, we'll make that blend first. Um, but uh, yeah, that's uh, we've been making that now for about uh, six years, and so that's become very popular offering. We then make our classic dry, so that is uh, a, a little softer, a combination of more of our vineyards on the farm, um, a lot more stone fruit flavors in there, and really just uh, super food wine, one of my most favorite. I think that may be the one that you yes. got for for your sample. Um, so yeah, the 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 changes in in varietal character and flavors. So um, back in the early '80s, all of our Rieslings came off of our heritage block, which was an eight and a half acre block that my dad planted 42 years ago. So very similar taste profiles across uh, the different Riesling sweetness wines, whereas now they're coming from six different vineyards throughout our farm. So we're definitely seeing a lot of differences between some of these dry wines um, and our, our ever popular semi-dry Riesling uh, that's a, about 2% residual sugar. We make a select Riesling, which is uh, about 3.5% residual. Um, and uh, we make a Riesling ice wine, which is uh, very popular. And uh, yeah, so it, we, we, love, we love the grape for the versatility. Um, and we really, with the expanded vineyard offerings on our farm, really uh, can differentiate those wines. It's not one particular taste profile with just different sweetness levels. It is very different flavors. And uh, we, the winemaking team experiments with different yeasts. Um, we experiment with different harvest times on things. Um, we are Riesling are almost exclusively mechanically harvested. Okay. So we employ a Gregoire G8 harvester made in France. Um, it is unique in the fact that it has onboard destemming and fruit oh. sorting. So we were, we're able to leave the fruit out there to hang to the, the actually the, the, the day or the night when we want to harvest it at the right temperature, um, the right dryness level so that we don't we aren't harvesting with any dew or moisture on the foliage. And we can really capture that fruit really uh, at the peak of ripeness. And we love the fruit, the fruit quality that we're getting because we can de-stem right in the vineyard. The stems are returned to the vineyard floor to be composted there. Um, the auxiliary fruit sorting uh, eliminates any material other than grapes. So what we are delivering to the winery is clean, ripe fruit. And it really has enhanced the, the quality of, of all of our wines across the board. But it's specifically important on some of these late season varieties such as Riesling, because as you, as you well know, being in the wine business, as you hang fruit longer into the season, you, the, the risk is there. And every time there's a rain event that's coming mm -hmm. up the coast, you get pretty nervous because uh, the, the early season varieties that you can pick in September are, are great because they're off the vine and they're safely yeah. in the winery in a tank in, a, in an environment that you can control. But uh, when they're out there, Mother Nature really has the upper hand. And uh, so, yeah, that's a little dicey there for a few weeks during harvest. But it's one of the nice things about being a state bottled is uh, um, we are in, in constant communication, myself and my son, uh, harvesting fruit with the winemaking team. And we huddle up every day and really discuss what the weather events are coming, yeah. where the where the fruit chemistry is at a, at a certain point, we sample, uh, just sample, sample, sample. So we really understand how the vineyards are developing in ripeness. And then we have the kind of the intimate connection with the vineyards. So we understand uh, 
whether this foliage is at the end of the season, like you can kind of tell with Riesling when the foliage gets tired and it's not going to push the ripeness any further. Oh, okay. the, the leaves will tend to lose their greenness and start to senesce. And so all that information goes into the harvest decision about are, are we going to let these vines hang fruit for another four or five days and try to play the weather that's coming or, th or this is it. This is as ripe as we can get it. We've got three inches of rain rolling up the coast. We got to pick tonight. Right. So we'll, we'll go out and pick through, through all hours of the night and uh, pick the fruit at the right temperature. We like to pick cool for Riesling that really preserves some of those delicate flavors. So there, there's a lot to it. And, uh, you know, really it, that's some of the things that we try to educate the, our visitors too. that it's not just, a, you know, it's not a formula where you just plug in ingredient A and ingredient B and make wine. It, there's, a, there's a lot of uh, guesswork, but we hope like educated guesswork that goes into it. And we, we try to file all the all those lessons that we talked about and, and really rely on them when we make the next one. So. Now, are you picking your, your clones or vineyards? at different bricks levels for the different Rieslings or are you dealing with the RS in the winery itself? A little, a little of both. Uh, so if we, sometimes we know ahead of harvest, okay, this particular pick is probably going to be in one of our sweeter Rieslings and we would pick with a little higher uh, acid level out in the grapes and maybe be a little bit more tolerant of some botrytis character in some of those wines where if we know that this is potentially going to be a dry Riesling, we certainly want to get the, the acid level down. Um, and really one of the hallmarks of our winery is balanced wines. So if, if we need to make some adjustments in the winery, some fine tuning adjustments, we'll do that. But yes, we really, we really try to have a pretty good idea of what wine that these grapes are going to go into. But again, we, we may have 15 tanks of Riesling uh, fermenting at any given time um, during harvest. So there's those, a lot of those decisions do get made um, post-fermentation when we've got some young wines and we can we, we taste them all blind, which is a pretty fun experience. We uh, bring back some of, uh, we have a couple retired winemakers that, that still love to be involved. They come back and we all taste through those Riesling tanks and really get a good idea of, of the entire harvest and all the, the the tools we have to work with, so it makes the the blending decisions, uh, you know, somewhat collaborative between a lot of people that have a lot of decades of experience. So that's fantastic. So I know it's difficult, uh, but I always get asked this question. We only have three wines, but uh, do you have a favorite child? <laughs> well, that, yeah, that that's definitely a, a tough one. Um, we, we do drink a lot of the uh, different wines. I, I do gravitate to the, the drier wines. Um, uh, love, love, a, a glass of dry Riesling with dinner. Um, do tend to drink a few more of the reds in, in cooler temperatures. Um, the, the Cab Franc certainly is one of the favorites. We make a Meritage, which is a Cab Franc, Cab Sauve, Merlot blend. Um, really have uh, quite a following on that. We've, we only make that in certain years when we can get those three Bordeaux varieties super ripe. So that's a, a that's limited production. So that that's a special one as well. But really, it's tough to tough to call out a favorite. We I mean they all have their place, um, and you know it depends on who you're enjoying the wine with too. Uh, whether you're taking it to to be enjoyed uh, at a dinner party or whether you're enjoying it with your dinner with food. But we are big proponents of enjoying wine with food um and that that was one of the philosophies my father carried forward and uh, he he started a uh, the Ginny lee cafe which is the restaurant that's here on site and really wanted to showcase our wines with food and you know so people can you know enjoy them and feel like they're a part of their daily lives too so awesome so um at I was looking up your information and it blew me away because we don't farm, we source, but I know how much goes into farming and you're, you have a lot of vines, but 
you also brew. You have a brewery? We do, yeah. Well, uh, again, I'll bring up my, my father was Bill Wagner, and he was always about the next project. So he, <laughs> he would charge right into the next one before he had the first one figured out. So we, we in 97, uh, we, we formed Wagner Valley Brewing. Um, we do all brewing on site. So um, we, we, we like to be authentic. We grow, we, you know, we grow our grapes here. We make all our wine here. We make all our beer here. We, we do not grow our beer ingredients. We do source them. So we draw the line <laughs> you, there. But, you beat me to my question. I'm like, tell me you grow your own hops. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, a lot goes into that. We, so, yeah, we've been doing the, in, in the brewing business for a little over 20 years. We make a, a full range of beer styles, pilsners to lagers, oh. IPAs. We do some seasonal Hefeweizen, maple porter, um, uh, started out as a winter seasonal, our sled dog, Doppelbach, that's become one of our staple beers oh, wow. here. So do some sours now. Um, yeah. So do you it, ship it, beer to California? Um, well, there's, we're under some more restrictions as far as shipping the beer. Really? Uh, it, there's more restrictions than wineries? <laughs> yeah. And, and, a little bit is is the it's somewhat cost prohibitive too because the cost of the beer versus the shipping is is a little bit different ratio there. Okay. Um, but yeah, we are restricted a little bit more on shipping beer. Some of those laws are slowly uh, getting a little more lenient. But as you know, it is it's a difficult, highly regulated business we're in, and shipping around the, the states has become a little easier. But uh, um, the Becoming compliant, we use a third party to, to keep up with all the paperwork to be right. compliant, and we are shipping to all states that le- we can legally do so. So that's listed clearly on our website. So. And I'm assuming, com- I mean, I don't know, but compliance beer is different than compliance wine? Well, uh, different states? Some, some similarities between the two, but yeah, they are two separate licenses, and yeah, <laughs> a lot to keep track of. <laughs> That is a lot of work. That is a lot. <laughs> that is a lot of work. Oh my gosh. Well, well I have a, I have a lot of really qualified people, a lot of smart people, and that's I, I think what you need to be successful in business is just a, a lot of people that can contribute their ideas and efforts to it, and uh, that's what makes it all tick. And is your tap room different than the winery, or can you taste both? Or are those different licenses? Uh, they're in the same contiguous building. Okay. Um, they are two separate tasting bars, but yes, they are in the same building. So you can come in and, and taste both in one visit. So, oh, okay. And then we, we have a large outdoor seating facility, so a, a huge deck with picnic tables that overlook the lake you know, and overlooks wow. our farm. So you can see all the, the vineyard acreages, and it rolls down to Seneca Lake and get some beautiful sunsets here. So it's... Uh, yeah, and then just next door, uh, you know, about 100 feet away is the Janine Lee Cafe where we do lunches and uh, some holiday brunches, wedding receptions. So, yeah, a lot going on in one, one area here and uh, hope people can come and, and experience it. And do you do any, like, uh, weekend events like live music or anything like that? Yeah, so uh, bar, you know, not counting this year, but uh, usually from Memorial Day to Labor Day, every Friday we have live music on the deck. Um, uh, Friday nights from six to ten, and we we serve food and beer and wine, and it, it's quite a good time. Uh, we we don't know whether we'll be able to do them this year. Right now, uh, they are not allowed. We're not allowed to do uh, any type of events yet. Right. Um, I believe all concerts are canceled for the area for the foreseeable future. So, yeah, we're, we're in a little bit of limbo on that. But, yeah, as soon as we are able to, uh, it's a great spot to do that. Um, and people can really it, – it's kind of – there's some roofed area where people can be under – be in the shade, but they really get that outdoor experience and, and yeah, some magical nights there on the deck. Wonderful. So my last question is, if you had to provide, you know, one, two, three tips to a Finger Lakes newbie, what would they be? Well, I would, I would say keep an open mind, plan enough time so that you're not rushed. 
Um, there, there's a, a lot to take in, and you, you can't do the entire Finger Lakes region in in a long weekend. It just isn't possible. But you know, um, do some research and find, like we talked about before, a little bit about what you want for an experience. Um, if you're if you're looking to maybe learn about the history of the region, there's some great museums in there. There's a lot of activities that you can get out and exercise great eating venues, um, but definitely search out the places that you feel are authentic and can really provide you with a, with a true experience of what's going on in the region. You know, you really, you don't have to necessarily drink a lot at each tasting that we, you know, we do offer um, dump buckets so that people can actually taste through a lot of wines. No more spitting. <laughs> yeah, you can't do that anymore, but no, I, it really, you got to kind of pace yourself and, and not try to jam too many into, into one visit. But uh, there's some lovely wines being made in the region, some really awesome, dedicated, hardworking people that have been working for a long time to, to push the quality of the wines in the whole region forward. And I, I think that will shine through if people do their homework ahead of time and, and, and find where they want to visit. But, uh, awesome. And, 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 and then plan a, a, a second visit to come back and, and see the other things that you didn't see on the first one. So Excellent, excellent. Now, I forgot to add this in the email um, because, again, thank you for doing this on such short notice. But normally at the end of these, I play a little game of opposites. And all it is is I just give out two things and you just say whichever one resonates with you more. So it's, it's like, I would say night or day and you just right. say whichever one. Are you up for it? We start off with non-wine and then I get into wine. So you're, you're digging into my inner soul. There you go. Yeah. analyzing me. Yeah, I'm analyzing you. Well, sure. I guess if it's a playful thing, yep. I, I don't know what you're going to learn about me, but. All right. Here we go. Day or night? Day. Sunset or sunrise? Sunset. Walk or run? Uh, run. Food or drink? Oh, that is so tough. <laughs> That's a tough one for you, right? I, I, I can't. Both. Okay. I'm not going to answer that one. Both. Old world or new world? Uh, new world. Sweet or dry? Dry. Red or white? Uh, depends on the day. Yeah, yeah, it depends. <laughs> Bubbles or still? Still. Oak or stainless? Stainless. Drink now or drink later? Drink now. Blend or varietal? Varietal. Vintage or non-vintage? Vintage. Cork or screw cap? Oh, that depends. We could, I could do a half an hour on that one. So um, screw cap, we certainly are very bullish on certain wines, cork on others. So absolutely both on that one. Okay. Uh, Napa, Sonoma, or Finger Lakes? <laughs> Uh, I'm going to pass. <laughs> <laughs> Commercial or indigenous? Uh, well, uh, I'm going to have to go commercial yeast on that, I think, for for the sustainability mm -hmm. and the consistency of it in our wines. So. Bordeaux or Rhone? Uh, Bordeaux. And warm climate or cool climate? Cool climate, 100%. <laughs> See, it's not so bad, right? <laughs> yeah, it wasn't bad. Thank you so much for joining me and for taking so much time out of your very busy day. And uh, yeah. I hope that uh, you guys get to, you know, open more uh, quickly. And, yeah, uh, yeah, we do too, so. Yeah. And, yes. It was great. It was a pleasure talking to you. And Thank you. Everything continues to go well for you. Thank so. you. Bye. Bye now. This has been another episode of Exploring the Wine Glass. Thanks for listening. If you have suggestions on what topics you would like me to discuss, please reach out on social media. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook as Exploring the Wine Glass. I'm also on LinkedIn as Lori Hoyt Bud. Of course, you can always email me at exploringthewineglass at gmail.com. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast catcher to help others find me more easily. 
Until next week, slancha.